0: It starts here in this manger, but it certainly doesn't end here. We know that. The Bible tells us in very clear language that Jesus, born in a stable in Bethlehem, had an interesting first few years of life. His parents fled with him to Egypt because Joseph, his earthly father, received a vision from an angel of God telling him that the child's life was threatened. We don't know exactly how long they stayed there, but they stayed long enough for the threat to pass. You can take the chronologies of when Herod the Great lived and died, and you can come up that maybe they stayed in Egypt a couple of years. But then they came back, and he spent all of his growing up years, his adolescence, and even till he was 30 years of age, he spent at home in Nazareth. Interesting, born in Bethlehem was a fulfillment of biblical prophecy which linked him to the greatest king that Israel ever knew, King David. But it was growing up in Nazareth that that he found happiness, that he found an occupation helping his father, Joseph, as a carpenter. There are lots of strange stories about Jesus outside of the Gospels. Sometimes you might want to take a a gander at some of those. I mean, all you got to do is Google infancy gospels of Jesus, and you will find some of the strangest stories you'll ever hear about the Lord. Building furniture one day with Joseph, and Joseph made a mistake and cut a plank too short, and Jesus said, don't worry about it, said the words, and immediately the board lengthened to its proper length. Jesus playing uh, out in the backyard with his friends, and they took mud and fashioned pigeons. But Jesus was able to take his and breathe life into them, and they flew away. Strange stories. Why do they even exist? Because so many of us don't seem to understand and know that what the Bible tells us about Jesus is enough. It's all we need. But someone way back there in the first few centuries of church history determined that the Bible wasn't enough, I guess, and began to create these wild, fantastic stories that have no basis in truth. And it's all in a search for trying to fill in all the gaps of Jesus' life. And if the Bible, the New Testament, doesn't tell you enough about the childhood of Jesus, then we just make it up. And all it does is cause confusion. What I want to ask you to do with me this morning on this Christmas day is let's go back and remind ourselves of how clear the Bible is about our Lord. We could turn to Luke chapter 2. That's a fitting passage. We could go to Matthew chapter 2. We could go to any of the prophecies in Isaiah that talk about the coming of the Lord. All of those are perfect passages. But there's one that, in my mind, cuts right to the heart of the matter. It's in a tiny little letter that Paul wrote to some friends in Philippi. We call it Philippians. It's in the second chapter. It's verses 5 through 11. And it happens to be a passage that there's been more written about. Entire libraries could contain books and commentaries and opinions and... All kinds of research on just this one passage. That's how amazing it is. I want you to listen to it as though perhaps you're hearing it for the first time. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who were in heaven and on earth and even under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. see, what Paul does in that passage that has garnered the attention of so many people, and so many have overstated the case perhaps, so many have looked at a passage like this and just been baffled by its mystery and its meaning, but I think really it's very simple. It's as though Paul were saying to us, just envision if God had sent Jesus to be a different kind of Messiah than he actually came to be. You see, I think that hits the heart of the matter. There are too many of us living even in our day. Now, no, we're not going to say we're going to add to the Gospels. We're not that arrogant. We're not going to make up stories about Jesus and tell them to our children and pass them along from generation to generation that make no sense whatsoever. And it's all because we can't grasp who he really is. But this passage clarifies that. So I want to simply ask the question, what if God sent his son to be a different kind of Messiah? That he came to be. There are several options here. I want you to consider them with me. What if God had sent his son Jesus into this world to be a commanding general? Think about it. That's what most people during the days when Jesus lived. That's what they expected the Messiah to be. I mean the very word Messiah carries with it. A military tone. A Messiah is one who doesn't just reach out and save someone. But a Messiah is one who comes in with a frontal attack. And destroys all the enemies. And brings the one that's intended to be saved to a state of of happiness. And you don't do that in any other way. But by brute force. Well, if... God had sent His Son to be a commanding general, then the conclusion would have to be that only might would be right. Think about it. You may wish and hope that all things could be solved by the sword, but all you have to do is be a student of history and not even a very good student at that. And you will discover that might does not make right. That the answer that we really need is not to have a Messiah that will come in here and blow everyone that we don't care about or that we hate off of the face of the earth. If that's the kind of Messiah Jesus came to be, he would have failed. Next time you begin to think of Our country, as solving all of its problems, by the sword, think again. Are we supposed to protect ourselves? Absolutely. Are we supposed to be prepared? Of course. But I'm talking about the Messiah here. And I'm thankful that God did not send his son born, not in a manger, but I'm so thankful that he didn't have him be born in some cavalry unit. Well, what if God had sent his son to be a national merit scholar? You know what that is, don't you? It is an honor reserved for the brightest of the bright smartest, most intelligent. With a national merit scholarship, you can write your own ticket. You can go to any college you want to. Because national merit scholars, and by that, just fill in the blank, the most intelligent among us are going to receive honors and opportunities that the rest of us will never have. What if Jesus came to be that kind of Messiah? Well, you know what would happen? If Jesus came to be the kind of Messiah that was like a National Merit Scholar, then only the most intelligent among us would have even a grasp of what his Messiahship looked like. Aren't there enough elite fraternities in this world today Don't we have enough who segregate themselves off and define themselves as how much better they are than the rest of us? Haven't we seen that higher institutions of learning, even though they have lofty goals, the bottom line is without some type of moral compass, it doesn't matter how intelligent or smart someone is. If Jesus came to be Just the most intelligent person on the face of the earth and to save only those who can connect with his intelligence, then we would all be lost. But you see, Jesus was not born in a library. As as useful as libraries and books and media can be to us, he didn't come to say only the most intelligent among you can enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you know what? Most of what this New Testament fights against, most of Paul's letters that we will read, fight against that very thought because there were those. They called themselves Gnostics. Gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge. And there was a whole system of mystery religions who claimed to find salvation by intelligence. And intelligence only. Jesus didn't come to be that kind of Messiah, praise God. But what if God had sent His only begotten Son into this world as a judge. What if Messiahship meant coming before the very bar of God and Jesus, the Messiah, would be set up as the consummate judge of all things? If that were the case, do you know what this world would be like? Do you know what movement would have consumed us all if it hasn't already because some of you view Jesus as being just this kind of Messiah. It would mean one thing and one thing only. That legalism would be the law of the land. Pure and simple. Only legalism would count. Oh, now you begin to understand. Why is it that in our society you always have to earn your promotion? You always have to Perform 120% to get that bonus and then it's not taken away from you. But if you ever want to get anything else done in that company, you've got to go even farther. You've got to do even more. Now, what have we built in to our children? We built in to you earn it. That's the only way you deserve anything is to earn it. Jesus was not born in a judge's chamber. He did not come to insert legalism into the equation of salvation. If Jesus came to be any kind of Messiah, it wasn't that one. Because he spoke so many times about what? About the danger of judging others. He came telling us that he came to set us free. He came not to enforce us with the law, but he came to fulfill the law. And many of us think fulfilling the law means he was going to Exacted, and that he was going to enforce it to the nth degree? Well, once again, go back and read your Bible. Legalism had its place, but with the coming of the Messiah, legalism was wiped off the face of the map. Jesus did not come to be a judge. But what if God sent forth his Son as the richest man in the world? I mean, those kings traveled a great distance to bow before him. Don't you think they were a little taken aback when this bright star that they followed and all of the ups and downs of their journey where they had to to deal a deal with Herod the Great to promise to come back and let him know where the child was when they discovered him? Don't you think that going through all that when they faced the child? He was a toddler at that time, history tells us. All those visions that bring everybody together at the manger, in the way it happened. But sometime later, those magi, those three kings, those wealthy individuals who had intellect, who had power, who had a military background, no doubt, you could wrap it all in one package, and it's called money. But what would happen? Only the richest among us would qualify, only those who could afford it. Only those who, with a mix of legalism of earning it and making sure that they had everything in place, that if he was the richest man in the world, then only money would count. But how many people around us think that money is going to save them? How many of us depend upon possessions and we act like we own possessions? Possessions? when we misunderstand the very nature that God owns everything and He's just given us the privilege of managing those resources, if Jesus came as the richest man in the world, then only money would matter and we would all be lost. But see, that's where this passage clarifies it all. Because this passage tells us that Jesus emptied Himself so that we might be filled. Go back to that passage. He emptied himself. He came to this earth. And it didn't matter whether or not he had all of the attributes of God. Because he left them behind. And he emptied his life so that we might be filled. And he went to a cross and died so that we might live. Philippians 2, 5-11. through 11. Turns upon its head any notion that Jesus came to be one of those other kinds of messiahs. That's exactly what most people wanted him to be. And that's why palm branches that were delivered and paved his way on that Palm Sunday when when he entered Jerusalem. That's why they were gone less than 24 hours later. Because people began to misunderstand to the nth degree that Jesus did not come to be a commanding general. He did not come to be anything else but a suffering servant. And he proved it on that Friday when he was nailed to a cross. There's a wonderful passage in the very last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 13. God allowed John, the apostle who wrote the Revelation, to catch a glimpse of the Messiah, of Jesus. It's a symbolic picture, but it's very accurate. Listen to what his words say. John said, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat upon it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself and he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. Can you catch it? Can you, can you see where John's coming from? Well, think about it here. Jesus, this vision that John has in Revelation 19, Jesus is more powerful than any army. Jesus is the very wisdom of God. Can you put these things on the screen, please? Please. Jesus is the forgiving and merciful judge. Jesus is more valuable than gold. Everything we mentioned five minutes ago about Jesus and how he didn't come to be a commanding general or the richest man in the world or the most knowledgeable person in the world or the judge who's going to condemn us all. When John sees a view of Jesus, a symbolic picture, He fulfills all of those roles. But He does so through a robe... dipped in blood. You see where this manger begins and where it ends up? That if you were expecting Jesus to come riding on a white horse... He does come in in Revelation on that white horse, but it's with a different priority. It's because of a different reason. If you wanted to find the one who judges the entire world with faithfulness and truthfulness, Revelation 19 tells us that that's what this rider on the white horse does, he is the faithful judge. And everything that John would want to describe the Messiah being and how he he describes him, it's all done just like we talked about five minutes ago. But it's done through the agency of a robe dipped in blood. And that means Jesus saved us through his death, through serving us, through his sacrifice upon a cross. You see, Jesus changes the landscape of everything we see. It doesn't snow very much around here. We all know that. But when it does, can you think of the time when you went to bed at night and you looked out on your backyard perhaps and it looked like it always looked? But then you woke up the next morning and everything had changed because of eight inches of snow? Marcy's brother has a a place in Colorado that we venture to at least once a year. And we happened to make it there with all of our family several years ago when that landscape had drastically changed because of snow. It didn't look like the same place. It's all beautiful, but it just had a different dimension. It felt different. We would sled down a hill down from their house, and then when we returned in the summer... It looked totally different. Because that's what snow does. It changes the entire landscape. It makes it look like something totally different, unfamiliar, yet beautiful. And I think that's how we need to view Jesus. That when he invades our life, when he he sits upon the throne of our heart, when Jesus truly Affects your behavior and your priorities. It's just like that snow. It's like everything in your life looks one way. And then when you ask Jesus to come into your life and He takes over the reins of your life, you see things in a totally different way. He changes the entire landscape of your life. So, do we serve a Messiah? Who commands all the armies of the universe? Absolutely. Do we serve a Messiah who has wisdom beyond what we can imagine? Of course. Do we serve a Messiah who's the most intelligent person ever? Yes, we do. We serve a Messiah and Jesus has come that we might have life and have it more abundantly. Because that's what the Messiah does. He changes everything. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to be here in church on this 25th day of December. And help us to honor you by the choices that we make. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Christmas, we worship. And on Christmas, we make choices. And that's how we wrap up this hour. We call it an invitation. Not every church does things this way, and that's fine. But we simply believe that when God speaks to us, he gives us an opportunity to respond. And some of the choices that we make are those that need to be made publicly before the world. If you're here today and you have never asked Jesus Christ to change your life, if you have been misinterpreting the kind of Messiah he came to be, just look to the cross. And thank him for his sacrifice. And step across that line of faith that says, I choose you, Jesus. Thank you for saving me. He will change the landscape of your entire life. We'd invite you to come forward and profess your faith in him. Stand before this congregation and so stand before the world saying, I love the Lord. Maybe you're here today and what you're looking for is what we offer you here. A congregation, a church where you can belong a family of faith, a place for your children perhaps, or if you're a single adult, a place for you. How do you join a church like ours? You come forward. But then for many of us, it may be that on this Christmas day, maybe it's time for us to walk out of here with a big smile on our face because if we finally get it, we finally understand that the baby born in a manger did not come just with the power of might with the intelligence, with money, with whatever it might be. Jesus came to this earth that he might die in our place. And however that changes your behavior, however it changes your priorities, God will show you. You determine to obey. There will be ministers and deacons here waiting for you, for me, as we make these choices. I ask you to stand with us and as we sing, respond as God leads.